Yeah, why is it that uh, this myth of, of the U.S. as um, um, the first democracy, writ large, uh, continues to command uh, so much attention when it was actually what you might call a democracy of the minority? What would be interesting would be to talk about the economic implications of democracy. What would an economic democracy entail? You know, what about... Uh, social dimensions of democracy. That's Angela Davis, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Angela Davis and Astra Taylor on democracy, theirs and ours. The term democracy is frequently invoked, perhaps never more so than after the January 6th assault on the Capitol which was almost unanimously described as an attack on democracy. The ancient Greeks coined the term, demos is people and kratia is power or rule, so ideally rule of the people. The U.S. is the champion of democracy, but who benefits from a system created by a handful of privileged property and slave-owning white men more than two centuries ago? Concentrated power and wealth undermine and corrode democracy. Never before has there been such inequality as we see today. Even before the pandemic, concentrations of income and wealth were astronomical. Now it's much, much worse. We're veering away from democracy toward oligarchy, rule of the few. What are the alternatives? Our guests today are Angela Davis and Astra Taylor. Angela Davis is one of the iconic figures of this era. She's Professor Emerita at the University of California at Santa Cruz and author of many books, including Freedom is a Constant Struggle. Astra Taylor is a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. She's the director of What is Democracy and the author of Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. This webinar, organized by Haymarket Books and Jacobin Magazine, was recorded in mid-October. If we simply look at democracy as a form of political rule, mm -hmm. we exclude a whole range of issues uh, that really ought to be attended to in discussions uh, 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 regarding a democracy. Yeah, why is it that uh, this myth of, of the U.S. as um, um, the first democracy, writ large, uh, continues to command uh, so much attention when it was actually what you might call a democracy of the minority? <laughs> yeah. What would be interesting would be to talk about the economic implications of democracy. What would an economic democracy entail? You know, what about um, social dimensions of, of democracy? Uh, I think that we can learn a great deal uh, from W.E.B. Du Bois about the nature of democracy. First of all, it's not a unitary term. Democracy is not the same across time, across space. Uh, too often, we think of 
democracy as one thing, you know, rule of the people, rule of the majority. Um, and it tends to assume um, an inside and outside. And so, therefore, so many struggles have been about bringing the marginalized, those who have been marginalized in relation to the existing democracy, into the fold of the democracy. And uh, that is where uh, we make many mistakes. Uh, and I think W.E.B. Du Bois and emphasizing what um, um, abolitionists were evoking uh, during that period argued that um, the democracy could not remain the same and respond to the needs of those who had been previously enslaved. Uh, the, um, the democracy itself would have to be transformed um, and new institutions would have to be uh, created. Uh, ways of guaranteeing that the democracy uh, could respond to the needs of a people who had been uh, held in chains uh, uh, for so many decades. Uh, when we think of democracy as uh, unitary, as a unitary concept, as one thing, as unchangeable, uh, our goal is simply to bring um, more and more of the marginalized uh, um, populations into the democracy. Uh, we fail to recognize that oftentimes it is the very structure of that democracy that has created the marginalization in the first place. Uh, and therefore, by simply including people, actually this is a critique of the strategies of uh, diversity and inclusion. Uh, and these days, the assumption is that any institution that wants to join the struggle against racism simply has to create their um, their office, of, their office of diversity and inclusion, uh, bring those in who were previously marginalized, but pay very little attention to the process of of transforming and changing and 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 rendering uh, more just the actual structure that was responsible for the uh, marginalization. So I think we have a great deal to learn from Du Bois and his notion of abolition democracy, uh, uh, which was never fulfilled, of course, in the aftermath of the um, so-called abolition of slavery, the negative abolition of slavery, the, the way in which the institution itself was prohibited. Uh, and I think that we're faced with basically the same issues that Du Bois was writing about in Black Reconstruction. And we're doing, as I've said many times, we're actually now, it seems to me, preparing to do work which should have happened over 150 years ago. Yeah, so it makes me think of James, the, the quote I think from James Baldwin, do I want to be integrated into a burning house, right? Or something to that effect. This is exactly, I think, what so many of us are wrestling with right now is that there's there's a tension between participating in the system as it is that a system that that is so problematic that disappoints us <laughs> that exploits us um, you know of course at varying degrees but is is a, a deadly and destructive system and wanting but also wanting to keep our eye on a transformative horizon. 
So, you know, I want to go back. You, you talk about the democracy of the founding white fathers, and there's all the ways that our the political system we are operating in it was founded on so many exclusions, the exclusion of enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, women, men without property, and those exclusions still reverberate today. And we could talk about, you know, why they were so averse to democracy, why the founders abhorred democracy. Um, they were interested in minority rights. They wanted to protect the rights of a minority, they, the opulent, they said, of landlords, of slaveholders. And the structures they devised are still with us and still constrain us. And it's frustrating. And we could go on about all the ways our current system is very undemocratic from the Supreme Court um, now promising to suppress any progressive legislation to the Senate, and it goes on and on. So this tension, I guess I just want you to speak to this tension of operating within the system as it is, working towards an abolitionist horizon, this expansive horizon, but also I think uh, being aware of the fact that progress that has been made can be rolled back. That's what Du Bois's work on Reconstruction teaches us, right? And we're seeing all sorts of attempts to roll back what limited political and civil rights people have. Uh, you know, and you know, in a basic way, you can look at this voter suppression that's happening. I'm in North Carolina now. Um, you can look at the disenfranchisement of felons. The state of Florida, you know, the, the public voted to reenfranchise uh, former felons, and then the Republican legislature said, "Well, no, not if they have debts, uh, court debts. We're not going to let them vote." Uh, so, yeah, I'm just wondering if you could speak to operating within these this this tension, keeping all of those levels in in mind. Um, I guess one thing I'll say is I think that conservatives sort of do a better job, just, and I'm thinking about democracy in a very limited terms in terms of elections or political system, but of uh, trying to alter the rules of the game. So not just trying to get inclusion, which is what you know progressives and liberals have been after, including ourselves, access to the ballot, but um, yeah, rewriting the actual rules by which you're included. Uh, and so, you know, I think, I, I think, um, you know, we are frustrated by presidential elections every four years, but I think in, in uh, the rest of the time, we do need to think about reforms that would change the rules of the game. So rather ranked choice voting or uh, ways to actually transform the system that might be uh, actually achievable on some level if we're strategic uh, instead of just thinking about participation. I think that um, if we simply look at democracy as a form of political rule, mm -hmm we exclude a whole range of issues uh, that really ought to be attended to in discussions uh, 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 regarding a democracy. Yeah, why is it that uh, this myth of, of the U.S. as um, um, the first democracy, writ large, uh, continues to command uh, uh, so much attention when it was actually what you might call a democracy of the minority, <laughs> which, which ought to be oxymoronic when we think about the, the ways in which we think about democracy. What would be interesting would be to talk about the economic implications mm -hmm. of democracy. What would an economic democracy entail? You know, what about um, social dimensions of, of democracy? Uh, how is democracy... Um, changed in relation to the particular economic system um, uh, which um, constitutes the foundation for that democracy. Of course, um, 
you know, Marx um, talked about bourgeois democracy, and I think it's really important to retain uh, some of that specificity uh, uh, that um, the democracies that we are um, accustomed to were democracies uh, designed to guarantee a political power from uh, the middle classes, uh, from the bourgeoisie, uh, in, in, in relation to the old feudal system. So um, what would it be like to um, imagine a democracy uh, in which everyone got to participate on a basis of equality, um, economically, culturally, socially, uh, politically. And I think it becomes much more difficult uh, to come up with a nice definition of democracy in that way. It becomes too complicated if we argue that everyone, for example, by virtue of living in a particular uh, region, should be considered a citizen and should be able to participate in um, the governing and the economies. What would that mean? Um, I love this I love line of question. So I think, you know, one, and this gets to what I was wanting to ask you and think about next, which is relationship of democracy to the economic system. And I noticed this when I was going around and interviewing people for my film and in interviewing conservatives, young conservatives in particular, I expected them to tell me how capitalism was democratic, right? And to, to use the rhetoric of democracy, especially in the days after Donald Trump won the 2016 election and a knowledge that they were actually never going to win majorities. And so there was this sense that democracy is bad. We depend on minoritarian institutions like the electoral college and forget that 20th century marriage of, of capitalism and democracy, that cold war marriage, we're gonna take the capitalism part you know, we are going to be sort of self-consciously elite. And we see this now with a lot of prominent Republicans have tweeted, hey, we're not a democracy anyway, right? You know, and reverting to actually this American tradition of being anti-democratic. I've also been um, questioning whether the, the outcome of the last election mm -hmm. might have been different if um, more attention had been paid to uh, those who um, are experiencing the um, impact of global capitalism, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, those uh, poor white families who now recognize that their children are not going to be better off uh, than they were. If we had developed strategies that would have permitted us to recognize that so many of the existing problems in this country are directly related to this, the rise and the spread of global capitalism. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, uh, we used to have more economic democracy than we have today. It used to be that uh, people uh, could expect to be treated at any hospital. If they were ill, hospitals and, and the whole healthcare system have not been thoroughly privatized uh, uh, as, as it has been, which is one of the reasons uh, why uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has created such a state of emergency, uh, particularly with respect to hospital beds, uh, because empty hospital beds are not profitable. And so I, 
I, I think that if one one looks at that the, the, the impact of global capitalism, the way in which it uh, is very much an explanation for the rise of the prison industrial complex, the um, disestablishment of so many of the institutions that used to serve as a safety net, economic safety net uh, for people, uh, the increasing privatization of education, the privatization of health care. And so the failure to develop more institutions devoted to the public good and the deterioration of those that existed have um, created a terrain in which poverty has uh, expanded, um, not only among communities of color, black, brown, indigenous communities, but also among white people. Uh, all the jobs that have gone all over the world, particularly to the global south, are not going to return uh, to uh, the U.S., uh, so I think it really is important to uh, consider the ways in which economic transformations have a direct impact on possibilities for democracy. Yes, and certainly, you know, I was making the film right before the 2016 election. I talked to a lot of people who were very frustrated and basically felt utterly uh, hopeless and for good reason. I mean, we've, we know research shows that regular people have basically no influence on, on public policy. I mean, one problem, right, is the, the dearth of unions and the tax on, and this brings me to another question I, I wanted to ask, um, which is uh, just the history of uh, actually of, of red baiting and attacks on the left and the role that has played in undermining democracy. Um, so I think it speaks to what you were just laying out, right? The lack of unions, <laughs> and they're not robust. The lack of associations where regular people can get a radical political education and, and you know, be, be treated as thinking active participants and think about the economy in a critical way. You know, I've been reading labor history through this pandemic. That's been one of my pastimes, the Red Scare. I mean, I don't need to tell you about attack on the left in the 1960s. And then occasionally, you know, it sometimes seems too that centrists, that liberal centrists would rather like lose to the right than let the left win. And so this demonization or criminalization uh, of the left, I think, has played a really powerful role in shaping American democracy as we know it. I, I do think it's important in this conversation about democracy to recognize the role that socialists and communists have played in struggling for democracy uh, in, in this country. I, I know that for for decades, uh, there were ways in which people in other countries who were involved in socialist and communist uh, 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 struggles referred to the other America. Uh, you know, there was the America, you know, represented, you know, by the um, those in power, and then there were the unions. There were the struggles against racism, uh, the struggles against uh, um, uh, sexism, and I think that uh, you were saying that you've been reading a lot of history recently. And what we've lost in our um, historical accounts is precisely the role that um, communists and other socialists played in expanding the possibilities of democracy in this country. Uh, we have unemployment and insurance precisely as a consequence of the struggles in the, the 1930s. Uh, and if one looks at the role that um, that black communists played 
in the South in creating the terrain for what eventually came to be known as the civil rights uh, movement, that has basically been um, eradicated from mainstream representations of, of, of history. And as we are engaging in what people are calling a um, racial reckoning, um, I think that the terminology should be broader. It's not just, it's not simply a racial reckoning. It's a, it's a, it's a reckoning uh, with the, um, the history of, of, of this country, uh, not only the history of racism and the history of uh, class exploitation, but also the history of the resistance. And if we aren't aware of those who uh, aspire whose struggles uh, uh, created democracy as an aspirational uh, notion, not as a given set of affairs, not as a, 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 a simply a way in which government is organized, but a struggle for a more just, uh, more equal uh, society. If we eradicate that from our history, then we have nowhere to start. We don't um, acknowledge the continuum on which our struggles unfold. I recommend this as a, as, a, as a way to spend one's time reading this history because, you know, incredible, powerful fights that came before. And, um, you know, I, I thought I knew it. And it turns out the more I read, the more I realize I didn't. Uh, how about reflecting a bit on the connection between incarceration and democracy? You know, it's, um, it's very interesting, uh, Patterson's uh, book on uh, slavery and social death, uh, in which he he speculates uh, that uh, Western democracy, as we know it, must have uh, evolved from the yearnings of the enslaved to be free. Uh, so the very concept of freedom then that we uh, work with in many ways uh, requires a sense of unfreedom. And certainly slavery was the palpable evidence uh, to those who were not enslaved that they were free. How do I know I am free? I, I'm, I know I am free because I'm not a slave. Uh, but of course, the emergence of prisons as punishment in conjunction with the, the rise of the, the, the revolutionary ideals and emergence of, of, of democracy, uh, imprisonment, punishment becomes the underbelly of, of democracy. It's actually not conceivable outside of the context of democracy. As a matter of fact, you need democracy, capitalist democracy, in order to um, uh, uh, imagine uh, imprisonment as a punishment. Uh, because what does imprisonment entail? It's, it, it, it entails um, the divestment of rights. And it would make no sense in a society that did not recognize individual rights. It would make no sense uh, outside of the context of a, 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 of, a, of a democratic society. I mean, this is one of the reasons why uh, the U.S. Uh, leads the world in terms of the numbers of people um, in, in, imprisoned, uh, incarcerated. Uh, even you know, countries like China and India that have huge populations do not 
can, cannot even begin to approach the number of people uh, who are in, incarcerated. So I think, I think it's really important to keep in mind uh, that, um, uh, that uh, constitutive negation of democracy actually constructs, I mean, that's the whole point of the constitutive negation. It constructs a democracy. And, and therefore, it has to be denied uh, from those who are in prison. And, you know, I, I, I watch your film. I was moved by so much. But I remember uh, this uh, young man, I guess it was in Florida, uh, who was a barber, mm-hmm. uh, who had uh, recently been uh, released from a, a prison. And what was his name? Ellie. Ellie, yeah. And I was so moved by um, the way in which he talked about education. And uh, actually, this is, this is kind of moving into another area, temporality and democracy. Uh, he, he, he said very casually, he said, you know, it used to be that my people could be killed for, for, for trying to learn how to read and write. Uh, and I was, I was struck by that. Because um, we are encouraged to think of the um, the human life uh, lifespan as the framework for what we do, and he just very casually um, talked about his people during slavery as if uh, he could actually smell them and touch them, and 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 it was a very small part of the film, but it, but it made me think about the extent to which the capitalist democracy, bourgeois democracy, creates uh, restricting and imprisoning temporalities. Uh, and our relationship to the past, our relationship to the future, is so restrained by the existing forms of democracy. And that uh, if we are to imagine new modes of democracy, uh, we would also have to uh, generate new temporalities. We rarely ask the question of what is democracy's relationship to time. And, you know, I, what I think uh, is that, you know, in a portion of the past has a really heavy hand. If you think of the Constitution, it's these founding fathers, their hand reaching up <laughs> from beyond the grave, and this hand, you know, this literally this handful of, of men still having an enormous say over our lives. I, you know, I think we need to expand democracy spatially to include, you know, to have an internationalist horizon, but I think also temporally to include future generations of people to come and somehow make their presence palpable in our democracy? How do we ensure, you know, a world for, for people who aren't yet here, you know, not in the pat way of protecting unborn fetuses, but in a meaningful way? How do you ensure that there's a planet um, for the people who don't yet have a vote or a voice? So I think that the question of democracy and time is really, really interesting to me and something that I, I think we actually really do have to think about. So, and the one thing I, I will say too on that front is I think inherited wealth is another way of the past having power over the present too, right? The accumulation of wealth from bygone generations mm-hmm. uh, weighing down on us today. So this time question is so, is so fascinating. Democracy has to be feminist for sure. I want to invite you to speak on the question, uh, on, the, on the idea of abolition feminism. Uh, the film ends, right, with Silvia Federici, the socialist feminist saying democracy in the home, democracy in the country. Uh, which I think points to the fact that we need to democratize, you know, we need to think of democracy in terms of many spheres of life, not just, you know, political sphere that we pretend can be severed from the private sphere, but education, the economy, 
<laughs> our relationships and, and even ourselves. Social feminists like Federici and many others have thought about social reproduction, uh, which is also sometimes just, you know, care work, the care for each other in our society. I just would love to hear your thoughts on, yeah, feminism and democracy and the importance of care in mm-hmm. a democratic mm-hmm. society. You're listening to Angela Davis and Astra Taylor on Democracy, Theirs and Ours. This is Independent Alternative Radio. And we begin by arguing that our feminism should be much more capacious than it usually is. We generally assume that uh, when the subject turns to feminism, that we're going to address issues of gender. And of course, uh, we have to address issues of gender. But feminist approaches uh, are so much um, broader than uh, simply engaging with gender. Um, We've learned how to think, um, you know, to use uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's term, intersectionally, Mm -hmm. uh, which means that uh, we've we've learned how to give expression to different. um, connections and intersections and interrelationalities, uh, you know, whether they uh, have to do with gender or, 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 or not. Uh, uh, and abolition um, feminism um, urges us um, to think um, to, to think about uh, what might be required to begin to move in a democratic uh, direction. That is to say, what might we need to dismantle? What might we need to cast into the uh, dustbin of history? Police departments and, and prisons, um, uh, privatized health care, etc. Um, but also how we think differently about uh, uh, those um, struggles. How would we um, think differently about, let let me use an example of of gender violence, if we did not have to assume that institutions of policing and imprisonment uh, were not there to uh, pretend to solve the problem, uh, we would have to take a much more complex approach. And this this is what I appreciate about feminism that it troubles our neat analyses it it makes us deal with a messy world it makes us recognize uh, that the that social realities don't always reflect the neatness of our analytical categories uh, and that we have to be willing to try to approximate the the messiness of, of social uh, uh, reality uh, And so that means that when we say abolition and when we say abolish the police, abolish uh, prisons as as two institutions that uh, need to be, um, as I said before, cast into the dustbin of of history, how do we address the problems that these institutions pretended to address but could not? Uh, And also uh, to uh, address the personalist political but uh, the personal is not um, political in a, in a way that um, allows us to equate the personal and political. The political constructs the personal. And what we often assume to be ideas that uh, 
that have been generated by our own individualities, uh, they are ideologies connected with the state. Uh, so a feminist approach would, would argue that we cannot achieve abolition without also recognizing that we have to uh, adapt a critical stance to our own emotions and to our own ideas, ideas that we assume are our own, but they're often uh, the ideas of the state that work through us. Uh, uh, and so I think these feminist insights uh, are absolutely essential when it comes to reimagining a, a democracy that would be more egalitarian and provide more justice for all. Right. And when you're saying, you know, or if I understand correctly, too, the abolition of prisons necessitates the building of institutions of care, of care and repair institutions. And so in that sense, and uh, addressing our needs, our emotional needs and treating people in a very different way. But there will be a lot of care work to do when we're repairing the damage of the system, it seems to me. And also that care work has been incorporated into activist work, which is, uh, uh, which is again, um, an instance uh, uh, that allows us to see the impact of feminism on, um, and when I say feminism, again, you know, it's one of those terms like democracy. Yeah. Uh, um, people think they know exactly what feminism means, just as they think they know what democracy is. But I'm talking about a feminism that is anti-racist and that is anti-capitalist and, and all those things, not just uh, what we used to call uh, bourgeois white feminism. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about non-human animals. I think one thing this pandemic has done is made me feel like we have a, an urgent, it's urgent that we bring this issue up because COVID-19 is not a natural disaster. It's a zoonotic illness, as yes. lots of pathogens are, and it jumps species because human beings, driven by capitalist imperatives, are devouring the natural world. We use 40% of the Earth's habitable surface for our food supplies. You know, the Chinese government, for example, encouraged smallholding farmers to hunt wild game because they can no longer compete with big agribusiness. The next pandemic will probably emerge from an American factory farm, whether it's swine flu or avian flu or a antibiotic resistant superbug, because we cram hundreds of thousands of animals into these spaces. Uh, it's striking to me that Donald Trump used the Defense Production Act one time, and that was to keep meatpacking plants open, even against the objection of the workforce, who are mostly immigrant, very underpaid, exploited. Uh, and that was driven by greed, not need. We're talking about a huge industry here that um, you know, is the, the risks of it are really becoming clear. There's these the risk of these novel illnesses, and then there's the climate consequences of this, this method of farming too. So I wrote a I wrote a piece with my sister Sonora Taylor, who's a disability rights activist, and we basically said, you know, this moment calls on us to have solidarity across species. And I think there are so many there are epidemiological, ecological, economic, and ethical reasons for the left to question. Uh, our relationship to animals to question meat eating. You know, I think socialists are quick to question private property in other spheres, but rarely, rarely ask, okay, well, what entitles us to treat animals as things, as property that we can exploit, and that uh, and animals as, as creatures we can relentlessly dispossess. Uh, so it can seem very utopian, I think, it's uh, to think about including non-human life in our 
democratic politics. But I, I think it, I personally just really strongly feel our lives depend on it, right? We're seeing that with uh, the destruction of the environment, with these, these illnesses, which were, are, are increasing um, in number and virulence. And, um, and, you know, I think people will often say, okay, well, we need to prioritize humans. And, and as though this is, uh, as though solidarity is a kind of zero sum game. And I guess I, I feel that we have to reject that and expand um, the circle of concern. And I just would love to hear your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I completely agree uh, with you. Um, you know, the prioritizing of humans uh, also leads uh, to um, restrictive definitions of who counts as human. And the brutalization of, of animals is related very much to the brutalization of human animals. Uh, so I, I think that this will be a, a very important um, arena of struggle during the coming period. Uh, the industrial production of food, uh, that um, racial capitalism has uh, generated. I, I, I think that uh, our eating habits, uh, which uh, reflect uh, more than our own uh, proclivities, that, that our eating habits reflect the uh, production of, of, of food uh, that is uh, governed uh, by racial capitalism. Uh, you know, when we think about struggles for freedom and struggles for democracy, the actual issues have transformed over time. Uh, and one of the reasons why I think this um, sense of, um, of the kind of temporalities uh, that encourage uh, more expansiveness and uh, uh, more capacious uh, uh, democracy uh, are um, also related uh, very much to, to the way non-human animals uh, and the flora of the earth uh, uh, figure into uh, our our frame. Um, the colonization of the planet by um, by Monsanto has created damage uh, that uh, is inconceivable. If we are to engage in ongoing struggles for freedom and and democracy, we have to to recognize uh, that uh, that the issues. Uh, will become ever more expansive uh, because initially, right, the question of democracy um, only addressed a small subset of white men, uh, you know, white affluent men. And then because of labor struggles, you know, perhaps, you know, working class men and struggles for women, um, gender struggles. You know, I'm not suggesting that this is automatic, uh, uh, this um, trajectory of history, but what we have witnessed has been an ever-expansive notion about the nature of democracy. And I do not see how we can exclude uh, our non-human companions with whom we share this planet. Uh, And I don't see how we can exclude uh, the, the, the flora. Uh, this makes me um, want to suggest that in these conversations and in these uh, efforts to broaden our notion of, of what uh, possibilities, what the possibilities of democracy are, 
in, in, in the future. We have to avoid narrow approaches. We have to uh, work against the the blinder syndrome, which means that we can't only think about uh, people in this country. Uh, during one of the other questions you asked me, I wanted to make the point, which I never got around to make because I, I moved in another direction. But as far as the vote is concerned, immigrants who live in this country ought to be able to vote mm-hmm. because they are part of the community. Yeah. So we will also have to address the obsolescence of the nation state. Uh, uh, so I'm thinking about issues that will more than likely come up in the, in, in the future. I don't know whether I, I will be around when they become mainstream. I did not think I would be able to witness the mainstreaming of abolition <laughs> and the entrance of, of, the, of the vocabularies of abolition into uh, uh, mainstream discourse. Uh, but uh, here we are. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about as the final question. I do want to say that for all the exclusions in American democracy, there was a long period when there was what was called alien suffrage, when actually voting rights weren't contingent on your citizenship. So that's a demand. There's precedent for that. Um, And there are some municipalities where uh, there's residency. It's all that's required for voting. There are other countries where you don't need to be a citizen. Decoupling democratic rights from citizenship, I think, is a something that we should be talking about all the time. It's, it's there in, um, in our track record and should be at the fore. I think, right, what community are you a part of? Your, where, where do you live? Not this arbitrary thing of, yeah, what passport do you hold? In, in some states, people in prison used to be able to vote. Yeah. Actually, incarcerated people. And candidates would have to go visit the prison. Absolutely. And so I think sometimes our imagination is close to just things that actually have existed before. I love this vision of democracy as this expanding circle. And it, what it conjures for me is people looking back on us and thinking, oh, you know, wow, they lived in the democratic dark ages. And that circle changes for everyone. It doesn't remain the same. It doesn't simply mm-hmm. become larger. Qualities uh, are transformed as well. Yeah, I want to think about this democratic horizon. This is where, where I want to end. And the work of, you know, I'm very concerned with building power. So that's why I have been involved in the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors. We need economic material power. But there's an imaginative part of this, right? There's the democracy. It requires these imaginative leaps, getting new ideas out there. You know, we've been trying to normalize the demand for debt abolition, for student debt cancellation and free college. Uh, We've made some progress, but you've done an amazing, uh, you know, with along with critical resistance and I'm sure innumerable comrades getting this radical concept of of prison abolition into the mainstream. And one thing you said, you know, you talked about how sometimes uh, organizers, they become veterans, uh, start to close their minds to new ideas from from younger generations, right? They want that process to stop. No more new ideas, no more expansion. (laughs) And so I just was wondering if you could talk about, I mean, you are so remarkable in your openness to emerging uh, organizers and activists, uh, your willingness to learn from them, and maybe give some tips on how to be a, a good mentor, you know, and how to uh, welcome the challenges from future generations of organizers who are going to push beyond what we can see here and now. I, I think I would say that um, mentorship has to be egalitarian, that we challenge hierarchies, including 
are hierarchies that are often seem to be seem to be set in stone, such as um, those that um, guarantee the elder uh, more uh, power and influence by virtue of age. Um, I think this is one of the ways in which we can enact democratic relationships uh, in uh, the course of struggling uh, for change. Uh, um, not only in relation to, uh, in, in, in the relationality of generations, but also in relation to, um, uh, you know, for example, those who are in prison and those who are outside. Oftentimes, uh, the, uh, those who inhabit the so-called free world assume that uh, they have um, a greater capacity to give leadership uh, than those who are imprisoned inside. Uh, and I, I'm really thankful to critical resistance uh, because from the very outset, the organization uh, insisted on bringing those who were actually in prison into the leadership. And as a matter of fact, at the conference that we held in 1998, uh, uh, we insisted that prisoners participate in as many I should say people in prison uh, rather than prisoners uh, uh, because, uh, you know, there's been a, a focus on language and how that uh, affects us as well. Uh, but um, we, we insisted that the various panels at the conference uh, had to include people who were in prison, which, you know, technically it was challenging because we had to set up telephones and telephone numbers so that people could call from the inside. But it was, it was, it was quite incredible. It was amazing uh, to feel as if we were in community with those who were locked up uh, inside and that we were willing to take their leadership uh, and that their ideas uh, would be given equal weight as the ideas of a of a Stanford uh, University uh, senior professor. And I don't think that we have enough occasions to engage in that kind of uh, prefigurative democracy, yeah. mm -hmm. creating democracy as we struggle uh, for democracy. That is also a feminist approach that uh, you know, helps us to not only imagine a new world, but to uh, become worthy of participating in that world in the course of struggling for it. In the spirit of democracy, we will now take some questions from the audience. So I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, Jules wants to know what inspires Dr. Davis about the major social movement of our day, Black Lives Matter, but, but also where it might stand to learn lessons from the experience of the uh, the new left and the the uh, social movement struggles of the the 1960s for a more egalitarian uh, society well uh, that movement is so exciting um, the ferguson uh, protests and uh, the emergence of, of black lives matter that uh, had an impact not only all over the country but all over the world. And then uh, more, more, more recently, of course, during the pandemic and the, um, the kind of um, grasping, collective grasping of the meaning of the term Black Lives Matter, which previously had been 
so often misinterpreted as meaning all lives matter, the tyranny of the universal, as um, I, I like to call it, uh, uh, was uh, a, a, a way of discounting the impact and import of uh, looking at the very particular experiences of black people in this country and arguing that black lives should matter and that only when black lives matter will all lives matter. And I think my mentors during this period have precisely been the young people who have taken up the struggles of the past and have given them so much more substance uh, You know, it inspires me because I see that there is a generation that takes for granted what we struggle so long and so hard to figure out how to even articulate. Uh, And they not only know how to articulate it, but they know how to to, uh, expand it and to develop uh, ways of transforming the world that are truly uh, inspirational. You know, I think our role is basically uh, to prevent the younger generation from making the same mistakes that we did. Um, Mistakes need to be made, and I always point out that oftentimes we learn so much more from our mistakes than we do from what we did uh, correctly, and that the younger generation has to be uh, permitted to experiment uh, and to, to not do it correctly in the course of trying to figure out, you know, how one builds movements. What is the language uh, that appeals uh, to uh, people? How can we persuade people that uh, even though we are living in a world that is made by capitalism, by racial capitalism, and that oftentimes our dreams are even constructed in accordance with capitalism, how do we nevertheless uh, uh, create a critical response? How do we encourage people and movements and organizations to recognize that uh, ultimately, ultimately, we are going to have to dismantle this system and move in a socialist direction? There's a question from that in the the chat, which is, are we missing something as far as organizations? Can you comment on whether there's anything we've lost and should try to find again? I can talk about a range of things, but I think I'll focus um, for the moment on internationalism. I tell you that, you know, sometimes I wonder why we have not been able to uh, create that sense of connectedness, uh, that sense of emotional connection with people in other places and other parts of the world. Uh, You know, why is it that, that black women... Uh, who are moving to the fore in this country are not uh, more connected to the black women's movement in Brazil. I'm yearning for the kind of internationalism that uh, make us uh, feel strong, that make us recognize uh, that our uh, desires are desires that animate people all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, in Australia. So if I were to ask, you know, what I would like to see now, that would be my answer. I'm not suggesting that there is no internationalism, because obviously the part played by Palestine, for example, in pointing the way to our 
abolitionist struggles in this country has been so essential. The fact that abolition simply isn't about getting rid of prisons, but it's about uh, the whole carceral uh, regime. And we see in occupied Palestine the way in which carcerality characterizes uh, the ways in which people are controlled in, in the community, and we have to beware of that. Uh, so I want internationalism now. People are wondering, is there an intermediary step? Is there some forms of, of democracy that we could create and enrich kind of before the revolution? Well, this is what we should be doing. I think I referred to enacting of democracy in the course of our engaged engagements, uh, uh, intellectual engagements, activist engagements. Uh, and I'm thinking that you know, academics uh, uh, most often tend to imagine themselves as solitary individuals who are uh, engaged in uh, labor uh, that is um, individual or, in, or individualistic. Uh, so what would it mean uh, to reconceptualize uh, um, intellectual labor? What would it mean to develop a more collaborative notion of, of research uh, and analysis? As we struggle for uh, vast changes, uh, we also engage in the process of bringing about uh, changes in our lives. And this is, of course, the feminist dimension as well. You were just listening to Angela Davis and Astra Taylor on democracy, theirs and ours. They spoke in mid-October. Angela Davis is the legendary activist, scholar, and author. Astra Taylor is a documentary filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive, and in our 35th year, we're supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a wide range of programs, including a series featuring Angela Davis. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to Haymarket Books and Jacobin Magazine. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Nina Simone, feeling good. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me, yeah It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me You've been listening to Angela Davis and Astra Taylor on Democracy, Theirs and Ours, an alternative radio program right here on WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for background briefing with Ian Masters right after NPR News. And as always... Thanks for listening and supporting WMNF, your community conscious radio.